Thank you, John. We are into week three of our more prayer, and uh, in rugby terms, it feels a little bit like we've dealt with Tonga, we've dealt with the United States, and now it's time to move on to bigger things as week by week we, we crack on with this and get into prayer. I'm sure we will sweep South Africa aside if that match happens. What we're doing in this series is learning to pray from biblical prayers. Each Sunday, we're looking at a, a prayer from the Bible teaching into that, and then during the week as we gather to pray, praying out of that and from that and learning to pray in that way. And today we're in John chapter 17, which is where we find a prayer of Jesus. John chapter 13 through to 17, that big block of scripture is Jesus giving instructions to his disciples and praying for his disciples just before he's arrested, goes to trial, and then to the cross. This is an amazing section of Scripture because it's here that we hear, we get, a, get to listen in and what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this last part of his earthly ministry before his trial, before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. So Jesus instructs his disciples and he prays for them. And we've got to know, I mean, it's obvious that if this is recorded for us in Scripture, Jesus praying for his disciples just before he goes to the cross, this has got to be an important prayer. So there's things for us to learn from the prayer of Jesus here in John 17. Uh, In the notes in our 50 Days of Prayer booklets, we start the reading at verse 20. I'm actually going to start at verse 13 and read down to verse 26 of John chapter 17. Jesus said this to his father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity." Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Well, this is a big part of Scripture, the prayer of Jesus. First thing I want us to see is how Jesus was sent to the world. Jesus was sent to the world. What is the most familiar verse in all the Bible? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this is what Jesus himself reiterates here. He says as he prays to his father that he has been sent 
into the world. Jesus was sent into the world. And at Christmas, we sing carols about this. We sing, He came down to earth from heaven. And every Sunday, we reference the fact that Jesus was sent to the earth. But we can almost kind of skip a bit lightly by this. The mystery of the incarnation, God taking on flesh. Something we sing about in Christmas carols, and it's something we kind of reference Sunday by Sunday, but it's actually very easy for us just to kind of lightly skip it by without really thinking about the wonder, the mystery of Jesus being sent to earth, God taking on human flesh. And I think partly that's because it's such a mind-boggling concept, it can be very difficult for us to really focus in on and think about. We can kind of, uh, at the worst, get into just kind of a cartoonish kind of picture of what's going on, that Jesus is a bit like a Marvel hero, that something happened and appears on earth. But what Scripture shows us isn't that someone got bitten by a radioactive spider or had some weird mutation. No, what happened was that God himself did take on human flesh. He came down to earth from heaven. God became man. And that's not only mind-boggling, it's actually scandalous. It's a kind of a shocking thought and an awesome, amazing, scandalous concept. And so it's one that's often been denied. People often denied those even people who are seeking after belief will often have denied that God took on human flesh. Often people have said, well, Jesus wasn't really God because the notion of God taking on human flesh is so scandalous. How can God, so different, so pure, so holy, so separate, so set apart from us, how could God take on human flesh with all its weaknesses and ugliness and problems? How could God take on human flesh? How? And so many have denied that God did and said, that, well, Jesus wasn't really God. He was, maybe he was an angel or maybe he was some other kind of created being, a special man, a holy man, sure, but a spiritual man, yes, but not God. And others have said, well, perhaps God, Jesus really was God, but then not really man, because how could God become man? And in a sense, See, Jesus is a kind of divine hologram, a projection of God uh, into man, but not really man. And the true gospel, the faith we believe, the confidence we have, the clarity of belief that separates true Christianity from all the isms and other doctrines is that, yes, God really did come down. Jesus did come down to earth from heaven. God did take on human flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That is much too good truth, much too, far too important truth to sing just at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, born as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Just amazing, staggering, world-changing truth that God took on human flesh. God has come as a man and lived amongst us. This is where John begins his gospel, John chapter 1. John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And in his first epistle, John writes, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. God took on flesh. Now normally, rightly, uh, in our teaching and our worship, we hurry to... The cross. We're eager to get to the cross. 
Without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, there's no dealing with our separation from God. There's no dealing with our sin. Without the cross, there's no hope of resurrection. Without the cross, there's no salvation. There's no life. And so we hurry to the work of Jesus on the cross. But without the incarnation, there is no cross. Without God coming and dwelling amongst us, without him coming down to earth, without Jesus being sent, there's no cross. If Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, the Christian message is just another philosophy. No difference, of no greater worth than any other philosophy. Now for those of you here this morning who are not yet believers in Jesus, the invitation, the thing, the invite to you is to embrace the miracle of God's taking on human flesh. Imagine what this would mean if it was true. If this is true, what would that mean? That the living God came and lived amongst us as a man. And for those of us who do know Jesus, this should cause us to embrace joy. Again, this is what Jesus prays. He says, I'm praying these things that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. Seeing who Jesus is, God become man, should fill us with joy. The way to God has been opened up to us by the God-man, Jesus Christ, because he's been sent into the world. Amazing, wonderful. Bailed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Second thing is that Jesus then sends his disciples into the world. What a place the world is. There's so much wonder and beauty in the world. The world is an extraordinary place. It's an incredible, beautiful, fantastic place. Consider the world. Consider the majesty of the created world. Even on a miserable week like we've had this week where it's not stopped raining and the wind hasn't stopped blowing, go and stand on the beach and look at the wonder of the waves and the ocean. And This is an amazing world. It's full of wonder. It's full of beauty, but it's also full of so much pain so much brokenness. Everywhere we look, we see the wonder and the beauty, and everywhere we look, we see the pain and the brokenness. We see the devastation caused to people by sin and evil. We see the devastation of sickness and death. We see the inhumanity, humans wreck upon other humans. We see the corruption of power. We see the ugliness of so much of what humans have done to the earth. Everywhere we look, there is pain and there is brokenness. What a broken week it has been politically as Parliament has come back and as we've seen the scenes. And uh, personally, I thought I shouldn't watch it because it just does not do me any good. But also, it's kind of toxically compulsive and I can't stop watching. And it's just the brokenness and the fractiousness of our political system at the moment. And at the beginning of the week, little Greta Thunberg in terror addressed the United Nations. The world is a frightening place. And you can feel after a week like this, caught between Greta Thunberg and the House of, Par House of the Parliament, that all you want to do is go in your house, close the curtains, shut the doors, pour yourself a large drink and hope and wish that one day it just all goes away. But Jesus doesn't give us permission to do that. What Jesus does is sends his disciples out into the world. Into the world. He doesn't 
send them away from the world. He prays, Father, don't, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. No, he's sending them into the world and he's not hiding them somewhere. He's not saying, Father, send them into a log cabin in Montana where they can just hunker down and last out until I come again. No, he sends his disciples out. And of course, this happens, this begins very soon after Jesus prays when we get to Acts. And Acts chapter 2, the day the Holy Spirit falls on the first believers and they're propelled out of that room where they're hidden onto the streets, declaring the glory of God and who Jesus is. And then the book of Acts, as we saw last year when we were preaching through this, that 30-year history of the first church exploding around the Mediterranean world as a small group of believers in Jerusalem becomes a multitude of believers in every city around the Mediterranean world within the space of 30 years. And we are still called to this, this adventure of faith. We're called to be Jesus' disciples and his witnesses wherever we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're one of his disciples, then you are a witness. You're always witnessing everything you do. Witnesses one way or another to the hope that you have. Christianity is a convert-making faith. Let's never forget that. That's what we're in the business of. We're in the business of proclaiming Jesus and looking for people to come in faith to him. And that puts us in a position of conflict. That's why Jesus prays this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus' expectation for his disciples is that as they witness to him, they will experience hostility from the world and then experience hostility from the evil one, from the devil. And we, are, we need to be aware, we need to be alert to the reality of spiritual warfare. Even as we push into this season of prayer, we need to have our spiritual guard up because as we engage in prayer, as we seek to know more of God and wrestle with things in prayer and pray for more, that stirs up spiritual conflicts. It's not a neutral activity. Our prayer is an act of warfare. And I think myself, I felt something of this these past two weeks as, we, as we've been praying, a sense of kind of wrestle, of spiritual battle. That's what Jesus prayed. He, he said that was what was going to happen. But there are going to be those who believe through the message of the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. As the disciples went out, people believed. This has happened. There are countless others who have believed because of the message the disciples declared. Us, we have believed because someone declared the message to us. And our calling is to call others to belief through our message. We have got to see more people believing in Jesus Christ. We've got to use the baptistry more. It was one of my prayers, one of my big prayers, you know, in the front of our 50-day uh, books. Write down your big prayers. One of my prayers is for more baptisms. Specifically, I'm praying that we'd see six people baptized between now and Christmas, which is a very tiny, modest number, but would still be something of a breakthrough for us. We've got to get the baptistry out more. We've got to see people believing more, more people believing. More prayer has got to be prayer for more people. has to be. We've got to get out into the world. Jesus sends his disciples into the world, proclaiming the message. We need to pray that God would help us get out. We've got to pray more for more people. Third thing is that Jesus is in union with his Father. 
What you see in this prayer, and you see throughout Jesus' ministry, is Jesus' complete, total sense of who he is himself, his complete sense of uh, self-identity. Jesus doesn't have any kind of existential doubts about who he is. We see Jesus wrestling. Jesus wrestles with the task that he has, and he wrestles spiritually, but he's never uncertain of who he, who he is. He's not sitting in his bedroom listening to Pink Floyd burning joysticks and trying to work out who he really is. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus knows who he is because of his union with the Father. He prays, you are in me and I am in you. And that's really difficult terminology for us to grapple with. When Jesus prays, you are in me and I am in you, what is Jesus talking about? What does that mean? The Father and the Son are distinguishable. They're not the same person, one God, but God who is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the relationship between them is so close that one can be said to doing the work of the other. This is what Jesus says a little bit earlier. John 14, he says, It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. The Father is doing his work through Jesus as he lives in Jesus. There's this indivisible union, closeness between them. And it's really difficult to find adequate analogies to help us try and understand this. It might be a little bit like if a sports team perfectly ed- executes the coach's plan. Eddie Howe or Eddie Jones says to Bournemouth or to England, this is how we're going to play the game. And if Bournemouth play the game exactly as Eddie Howe has told them to, or if England play the game just as Eddie Jones has told them to, and at the end, that's the, the, those reporting and interviewing the coach will kind of say, it was your victory, Eddie Howe, you won. Your team did what you wanted. It was your... Eddie Howe hasn't been on the pitch. He hasn't kicked a football, but somehow it's Eddie Howe's victory because it's worked through the team which he has coached, prepared, taught, trained. Maybe it's a little bit like an ambassador representing their government, an ambassador going to a different nation and representing exactly what their government wants them to do. Maybe it's a little bit like a husband who miraculously anticipates and fulfills his wife's wishes just as she would want them done. That kind of miracle sometimes happens. Maybe those kind of analogies are a little bit like what we're seeing in the union of the Father and the Son. They, these, those things might give us a picture of what Jesus is talking about when he prays, I'm in you and you're in me. But those pictures are partial and they're incomplete. What we see in Jesus and his Father is an indivisibility of desire and purpose between the Father and Son. And for us, this means that knowing Jesus is the way by which we know God, which is why we say to people, come to Jesus, because coming to Jesus is the way that you come to God. It's why Jesus prayed for those who will believe in me. Those who believe in Jesus, those who know Jesus, know the Father, they know God. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. So this leads to the next thing that Jesus prays about, the disciples being in union with him. Jesus prays that we would know the Father's love in the same way that he knows the Father's love. He prays that we would learn the love, the same love that exists between him and his Father, that we would know God dwelling amongst us somehow in a way similar to the way that he knows it. And there's lots of New Testament imagery about this which draws an Old Testament 
imagery. In First Peter, Peter talks about us being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God dwelling amongst us. In First Corinthians, Paul talks about us being one body, the body of Christ. In Ephesians, it describes us being a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There's all this imagery in the Bible of the people of God being a household, a temple, a living building, a, a people, a community amongst whom and in whom God dwells. And really, that's what it means to be a Christian, that we have a sense of God dwelling amongst us. And we should be looking to feel, experience this as we gather to pray. As we gather to pray day by day throughout this season of 50 days of prayer, we need to gather with an expectation that God is dwelling in the midst of his people, that we are that chosen people, royal nation, holy priesthood, that we are that one body, that we are that living temple, that dwelling in which God is living by his spirit. And so that needs to affect how we pray. Sometimes when we get together and pray, it can feel a little bit like you're kind of picking up your prayer requests off the ground and you're kind of hurling it at the sky and often it doesn't get very far, and it, you feel it's kind of dropped to the floor again, and you might pick it up again and try and throw it up to the sky again. It's kind of, let me throw my prayers up to the heavens and see if any of them kind of break through gravitational pull and somehow make it through to heaven where God might be. And that's not really, that's really not how we should be praying. When we gather to pray, we're not just hurling prayer requests up at the heavens in a vain hope that some of them might defy gravity and fly. No, what we should be praying for, what we're looking for, what we're expecting is an experience of knowing Christ. We want to know the experience of the love of the Father. The love that the Father has for the Son being our experience too. So this week... As you gather together to pray, let that be our expectation. Let that be the basis on which we come. As we get together to pray, let's come with that anticipation, with that desire. Lord, we want to know your love. This is the whole deal. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus prayed, that we would know the love of the Father in the way that he knew the love of the Father, that we would know God dwelling amongst us, in us, through us, somehow as Jesus did, because we know Jesus, which means that we are brought into this place of relationship with the Father and can dwell in his love because he dwells amongst us. Let's pray like that. If we're praying like that and experiencing that, that transforms what prayer is. Prayer isn't just pitching requests at God. No, it's knowing the presence of God. That's what we need to know. And the last thing we see from this prayer is that our union is our witness. Verses 22 and 23 contain one of the most wonderful promises of Scripture and also, to be honest, one of the most troubling statements of Jesus. Let's read it. Jesus prayed, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a promise in this prayer of Jesus is that we will experience a degree of unity together, which is like the unity of God. The kind of unity that Jesus and the Father have is the kind of unity that Jesus' followers will have. Jesus has given us his glory. He shared with us the revelation of who he is. In him, sin and death are defeated. In Christ, we're destined for eternal glory with him. 
That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Yes, we share in the glory of the Lord. It's why Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 to speak about our glorious destiny for our light and momentary troubles. This is an amazing verse. Because often our troubles might not seem light and momentary. They might seem heavy and lengthy, but Paul says in comparison with what's coming, they're light and momentary. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The troubles of this life, which can seem so heavy and burdensome to us, are nothing in the scales compared with the weight of glory that will be ours eternally in Christ Jesus. We have this promise of sharing in the glory of the Lord. What a promise! But then Jesus, in the same breath, prays that the disciples will know complete unity. And then we look at the state of the church in the world, where there doesn't seem to be much unity much of the time. And Jesus prays, he says, that it's our unity that will demonstrate to the world the reality of our faith in him. Now, What does this mean, and what are we to do with this? Now, some would say that the church should be administratively, structurally, organizationally one, that there shouldn't be any denominations, shouldn't be any different streams and movements. Basically, we should, all Christians should be Roman Catholics. And that's actually a really powerful argument to have a structural, organizational, administrative unity of the church. Of course, the trouble with that is that it makes the church an institution more than a living body, and if the head becomes corrupt, there's no easy mechanism for preventing the whole body from rotting. Another approach that people often have is to say, well, what we really need to do is to play down the differences between us and our different churches and denominations and streams and movements. Really, it's all just flavors of ice cream and whether you're Anglican or Methodist or Baptist or New Church or whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. It's just like different flavors of ice cream and you pick the flavor you like, but really we're all the same. Trouble with that, it tends to ignore real gospel issues. That some of the differences we have between different churches are not just matters of style. They're fundamental gospel issues in terms of how we understand all that God has done for us and the claim he makes upon our lives. And it also means that things tend to get reduced to the lowest common denominator. I've been in some kind of unity services and things, which, to be honest, have just been so painful. It's the lowest common denominator, dreadful dreary worship, and it's the lowest common denominator, blessed holy thoughts, and it's just death. And actually, ironically, in saying it's just flavors of ice cream, we lose sight of the church. In the end, it normally becomes about projects, and rather than through their unity Will, they, will I be made known? It's more like when they see our projects, the world will know who I am. And that's not the case. So a more helpful approach, I think, is to understand that the church is organic. It's a body. Jesus said he was the vine and we are the branches. And the church is a bit like branches of the tree. And there's the stem we're grafted into, the trunk, Jesus, and There are different branches that grow out, but there is an organic unity despite our differences. And even where we're not structurally one, actually organically in Christ, we are joined together. And one day, the present 
structural, visible disunity of the church will be abolished, the invisible will be made visible, and our unity in Christ will be seen. Right now, I appreciate greatly in our context the breadth and depth of friendships, relationships that we have in churches across the conurbation. Just last Thursday, I was sitting with a group of pastors representing a broad spectrum of different churches. This coming Thursday, I'll be with another group of pastors doing the same thing. I appreciate the friendships that we have. But where what Jesus prays, where the rubber of his prayer really hits the road, is in local churches like this. I think this really is the practical outworking of what Jesus prays, that there should be something in churches like this and in every other Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching church in Paul and Bournemouth and Christchurch and to the ends of the earth. In congregations like this, there should be something about the quality of our shared experience of Jesus which answers this prayer that Jesus prayed. There should be something about our life together as a church which really does speak to the world around us. And there should be something about the life of Citygate Church in Bournemouth and Christchurch, Westbourne and Lansdowne Church and all the other churches that we're friends with. There should be something about the quality of their congregational life which really does speak to the world about the unity that is ours in Christ, that we're united with Christ and united with one another. As it says in 1 Corinthians 14, that unbelievers would come amongst us and say, God is really among you. There should be something about the quality of our life, the reality of our experience of the love of God, of the union we have with him and the union we then have with each other that speaks to the world about who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's pray for that. Let's pray we know that kind of unity, that kind of union together. What Jesus prays here is absolutely mind-boggling, extraordinary, incredible stuff. He prays that we would get to know the love of God, that we get to share in his glory, and we get to invite others to enjoy this with us. How amazing is that? And so let's pray. Let's pray that we would have the courage to get out because Jesus is sending us into the world. Let's pray for a real depth of experience of unity with God, a real depth of experience of his love that we would know, we would tangibly feel, experience the love of God. Let's pray for that. This week as we gather, let's pray for that. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for ourselves that we would truly, genuinely know the love of God being poured into our hearts. Let's pray for the reality of our unity. It can be broken. It can be broken by foolish things being said or done. It can be broken by taking offense at things. It can be broken by sin coming in. We have an enemy who hates the unity of the church. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray that we would have a unity which is genuine, which speaks to the world. And let's pray for salvation. This was Jesus' prayer, his confidence. As he sent the disciples out, others would believe, others would come. More prayer has got to mean more people. Let's pray for salvation to come. Let's pray for that baptistry to be out. Let's pray for the life of God to be seen amongst us more and more. Jesus prayed it. Jesus' words but not in vain. Jesus wasn't just pinging prayers at the heaven. No, Jesus prayed exactly what his Father would have him pray, and his prayers will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Let's stand together and let's uh, say this prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for enabling us to hear and respond to the message about you. Let us know and feel more of your love and more of your glory and help us to share this message with others. Let our church grow through more and more people, seeing the wonderful good news we have and coming into relationship with you. Amen. Yes, Lord, we do pray that. Thank you for the way that you prayed. Thank you that we can learn from your prayer and we can lay hold of it and claim it as our own, that as you prayed for the disciples, you were praying for us. These things you prayed are for us right here, right now. And so I ask that we'd respond, we'd be obedient to the prayer that you prayed. I pray that we wouldn't hide away from the world, but we would be out in it witnessing to you. I pray that our prayers would mean more people coming to you, that through the message we proclaim, through the message that congregations, churches throughout this town proclaim, that in this town there might be, Lord, a multitude of people who turn to you, those who don't know you at the moment, who would turn to you, who would find life, would find union, unity with God and with his people. Let us know your love in a fresh measure. This week, I pray, Lord, let us know your love. Father, let us know your love and taste something of the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. For these things we pray, confidence that you will hear our prayers. Confident, Father, you hear our prayers because you heard the prayers of your Son. We ask these things in his name. In your name, Jesus, we ask them. Amen.